Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Margie. I know that was very difficult for you to do that, and, to, and I've got other friends in here representing uh, Oklahoma Sooners and others, so I, just, I take great pleasure in celebrating uh, a wonderful season and hopefully it'll culminate a little bit better at the big, than the Big 12 championship. Uh, it is good to be here. Um, you know, Margie and I had breakfast a few weeks ago and caught up, and it's funny, I'm often asked, um, do you miss being in Washington, and do you miss what's going on up there, and um, it doesn't take very long to explain my current state of happiness. Um, If you just take a walk down memory lane of the seven years when I was in office with President Bush, we had the tech bubble popping, the 9-11, military campaign in Afghanistan, anthrax attacks in our own country, which a lot of people forget about, military campaign in Iraq, obviously, a shuttle disaster, Two Supreme Court nominations. Vice President Cheney actually shot somebody. (laughs) That was a long day. (laughs) The largest natural disaster in our nation's history. North Korea conducting nuclear tests. Iran finding her nuclear capability. And the most uh, serious financial crisis our country has faced in more than a century, half a century. And then I see what the current White House is going through, uh, whether it be double-digit unemployment, a massive overhaul of our health care system, a massive overhaul of our financial regulatory system, uh, controversial climate change legislation, swine flu, Somali pirates, and party crashers at the state dinner, (laughs) which was uh, particularly interesting to watch. In fact, I want to tell a quick story before I... Uh, get into the speech because as watching that, and that is one of those real kind of headache days, that was a critical week for them where they were trying to advance messaging on both Afghanistan and on the jobs and all these, and then they find themselves mired in a debate about who was at fault with regards to this couple getting into the state dinner. And it's like one of those just frustrating weeks, months, years, presidencies you have where it feels like every time you turn around a development like that, and you see this little tension now that's going on in the White House about uh, the finger-pointing was it the Secret Service's fault, or was it the Social Secretary's fault, and back and forth. And, and they unfortunately rolled up uh, the director of the Secret Service, who is a, a wonderful man, uh, to take the bullets, as they say, the political bullets up on uh, Capitol Hill and, and, and under the questioning. And I just, I would say um, uh, there's probably a little bit of fault to go around in that regard. Uh, but I will say from my experience, and particularly most vivid experience of watching the Secret Service and watching our professionals, and it really it transcends across all disciplines, whether it be Secret Service or Special Forces or military, and you really don't understand it until you're in a crisis. And I was, um, I don't know if the word is fortunate, or I was, uh, happened to be with President Bush on the day of 9-11 uh, down in Florida when the first tower was hit, and obviously when the second tower was hit. And watching those who were trained all their lives to prepare for an event like that was incredible. 
as you can imagine, there was political staff like myself. We're only eight months into the presidency, and we're kind of running around like chickens with our heads cut off trying to figure out what we're going to do. But you saw years of training go into effect as we got into the motorcade going 125 miles per hour to the airport, getting on Air Force One, not learning until several months later. Usually when you take off in Air Force One, it's a very steep ascent, as you would expect, just for natural precautionary measures. But in this case, I mean, it literally felt like the shuttle taking off. I mean, we were going as fast as I ever had in that, in that uh, 747 straight up. And Colonel Tillman, who was uh, uh, the, the pilot uh, for Air Force One, later said that there was an unidentified vehicle at the end of the airstrip that the tower could not confirm. So he didn't know if this was RPG or something like that, some part of a coordinated attack. So that was the reason why he was taking even more aggressive precautionary measures as we took off. So you had this dynamic playing out in which, over the course of that day, as we're trying to gain more intelligence and information about what was happening, um, you saw the steps that the military officers on the plane and the Secret Service were taking, precautionary steps, whether we were going to stay overnight in Nebraska or whether we were going to come back to Washington. And they were giving, obviously, advice not to come back to Washington, but it was uh, overruled by the president and decided to come back. So as they're going through that process, um, you can only imagine when you're yourself trying to grapple with trying to reach your family back home where you can't use any of the phone lines. I know you have a wife and kids back there. They don't, you don't know if there's going to be more attacks on the country. You're trying to keep your professional hat on. You're trying to have to give advice to the President of the United States during a crisis. And you have these conflicting uh, moments, and you don't see that happen with the Secret Service. And it, and it really came home for me as we, were, we had made the decision to go back to Washington and we're in the conference room of Air Force One. We're working on the speech to the nation uh, that he would deliver at the Oval Office uh, four hours later. And the White House physician, who's a colonel in the Air Force, who is basically leads the president's medical team, slowly made his way around the conference table to the president's staff and handed all of us a sleeve of pills. And he said, you know, you need to take these. And what it was is a precautionary measure. Didn't know if there was going to be any sort of uh, kind of unconventional attack associated with this, so he wanted to take some precautionary measures. A lot of us were distracted, including myself, working on the speech. So I took the sleeve of pills, took the sleeve of pills, drank the water, go on. And like a minute later, I was like, why didn't anybody else take the sleeve of pills? <laughs> and I, so I go down, I picked up and said, take one pill each day for the next eight days. <laughs> and I'm like, what did I just do? I just killed myself. <laughs> in the middle of a, an historic crisis to our country. Now I'm going to be... Um, so I obviously didn't want to panic in front of the president and all that, so I calmly backed away. Went in, and there was a special uh, room on Air Force One where the medical staff, and they're busy uh, going through their training and doing the things that they obviously were doing. And I was like, his name was Dr. Tubb, and we all called him Tubby. I said, Tubby, you're not going to believe this. I took all those pills. And he's a, kind of a prankster guy, so he's like, no, you didn't, Bart. This is a national security. I was like, no, I did. He's like, why? I, like, I don't know. I was like, I did. That, let's get beyond that point. What do, what do I do? And he's like, you'll be fine. Don't worry about this. He's like, well, we'll take care of it. Um, go back here to the work, and I'll come get you in a minute. So you know, a minute, five minutes passes by. I was like, i got to go find out what's going on. So I go back in there. I say, what? I literally walk in, and he's on the f- he has the big red medical book out. <laughs> and his assistant's on the phone with the CDC, and they're saying, I think we found it. I, they've got laboratory tests with animals, but I don't think this is going to be a problem for you. 
this is supposed to be the best doctor in the world. And I'm like getting this qualified, you know, we've tested this on rats advice. And so he says, go back there. Anyways, I go back. Five minutes later, he kind of pulls me out and he handles, hands me a bottle of Maalox. And he says, drink all of this. I think. I'm, you'll be fine. He's like, you have no idea what I should do. He's like, shouldn't you be pumping my stomach and all that? He's like, no, no, no. I think, I think you'll, he kept saying, I think you'll be fine. It might be a rough couple of days. I'm just like, Anyways, I turned out, obviously, to be fine. Um, but it was one of those obvious moments where the, the stark contrast between those that, who are trained to do what they do in a time of crisis and those who obviously are not um, was extraordinary. So I, I feel for those guys the, uh, and women in the Secret Service because they do do a phenomenal job. Um, and, and, but I also feel for the political people in the White House because as they're grappling with the challenges they're facing, in our country and, our, and the world faces, the last thing they want to be dealing with is how some couple got through the gates for a state dinner. And that's really uh, the crux of what I want to talk about today is really that nexus between public opinion and global trends in public policy and business, and particularly how the transformation in communications and technology uh, is fundamentally altering our politics uh, and the landscape for corporate America. So let's start first with public opinion, kind of what is the mood of the country? What are we facing here in this country? In 2008, we saw an unprecedented level of support for the government and government intervention in key sectors of our economy, areas where heretofore the public wouldn't allow for the government to be there. That was coupled with the ascendancy of a new president in 2008 and President Barack Obama. So you had this unparalleled support by the American people, not only of an individual but of a concept of government intrusion, intervention, whatever the word, oversight, regulation of our economy. Um, that is typical during a, t a time of crisis. This happened after 9-11, that when there's a national crisis on foreign policy like 9-11, there's a rallying effect to the government with the financial crisis underway. It was a common, uh, this was also a common aspect of public opinion, which they're going to rally to the government. This is what happened in that case. What happened is obviously as the crisis abated and the steps taken by the previous administration and this administration, and people started to see that the end is not near, coupled with the fact that I believe the way the first piece of major legislation was conducted by the new administration, the stimulus package, which was, um, regardless of its merits, the process itself seemed very typical of Washington to a lot of people. It was instead of the new change we had asked for and voted for with Barack Obama, we kind of got the old pet projects, conventional, built Democratic built-up angst over years of not getting their way, and boy, we're going to get it all in one big piece of legislation. This was a big Christmas present. And I think that kind of made people, and it, and it was very expensive, obviously, on top of uh, the introduction of the health care debate in which there was enormous price tags being associated with that, that you saw in 2009 public opinion shifting back to more natural levels of skepticism with regards to the government's role in our economy and the private sector and issues that are important to the, to the public. Um, that's not to say that corporate America comes out of this in good shape. Uh, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't say that the average um, approval rating of a CEO in America right now is about 23 percent. About the same of the Congress. Basically, everybody uh, out there who are major voices uh, in public policy, numbers are in the tank, to be honest, except for Barack Obama. Now, his num numbers have come down, down significantly. In fact, if you average all the public polling out there right now, his approval rating is 
which will be the second lowest in modern history for a president after his first term, which is striking to, un to, to think about considering all the euphoria in January and February of this year that we felt like there was going to be a sustained, unprecedented honeymoon. There was all those discussions. But we've seen those numbers come down significantly. But having said that, at those numbers, he still has a 20-point advantage over any other politician, over anybody in the public sector, save probably Warren Buffett and uh, Bill Gates. Seriously, we, we polled it. And no one else even has the standing credibly to uh, engage in the way he can. So he still operates from an enormous position of strength. The Republicans, on the other hand, while probably buoyed by the midterm elections and by some of the, the fall of this president, they are in no real shape uh, politically to take uh, advantage of that electorally. Now, we can get into that a little bit later, but right now, while his numbers are down, he is still the only game in town. Um, it's also important to understand, though, that while the private sector's um, standing may be tarnished, particularly by the financial services industry and what happened there, is that the public now is inviting the private sector back to the table. They do have an expectation that the private sector play a role in this debate, in this discussion, a constructive role, not one in which they're continually saying what is wrong with every proposal coming out of Washington, but how can we make it better? So there is an invitation for the private sector, for the business community, to play this role. Um, it is important because I think oftentimes what happens is, is that, particularly in the business community, particularly during the economic tough times, they say, I'm just going to focus on my core business. I'm just going to put my head down. I'm not going to be able to affect what's going on there. And I think that's short-sighted because um, at the end of the day, the public expects you to be there. That means your customers, the people that influence your business model, are weighing in on your reputation that way. So it's, it's important um, to play that game. Globally, I would say that the trends are equally disturbing with regards to public opinion. The economic downturn is fueling a growing isolationist and protectionist sentiment here in the United States. We're seeing that play itself out in trade policy and other types of public policy matters. That is not, um, and with the, ch the challenges we've had from a foreign policy perspective in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, a retrenching mentality, both economically and from a foreign policy perspective, is not uh, uncommon. Uh, the concern, I would think, is that Will it be pervasive and sustained, or whether this is episodic? I think it's too early to tell. And also, if you look around the globe, a recent, a recent global survey said that a majority of countries are skeptical or outright opposed to capitalism as the preferred economic model, and particularly in developing countries like China and Brazil and India, that is the case. Um, so you have this dynamic in which the, the American people are, are increasingly looking inward, and the globe, the world, is increasingly looking away from the United States and the economic model that built up the prosperity we enjoy and the, globe, the, the world enjoys to alternative forms of, uh, of, of their economies. And I would also say that it, it goes without saying that the United States' standing in the world has diminished due to those controversies, whether via uh, the military campaigns in Afghanistan or Iraq or the financial crisis. And I think a lot of people put it a lot of it on Guantanamo and those issues, but our standing due to the financial crisis as well, this is one area where we had unparalleled expertise and credibility, and that all came crashing down last year. So you have this dynamic in which um, our standing is, has diminished. Now, it's on a parallel case. This is not much different than Obama. We are still the most respected voice uh, in the game. 
and have to be taken regularly. And, I, and, and that was even the case when my old boss was in, was in the Oval Office. And a lot of people like to think, as, oh, we weren't listened to this. And he, uh, he was so controversial overseas, which was all the case. Um, I won't deny that. But I'll also say that the conversations we had privately with leaders from around the world was far different than the conversation they were having through press conferences and, and conversations on the talk shows, particularly in Europe. So in a classic example of that is where the United States president is always left carrying the mail, uh, was when, for example, we would set up um, a bilateral conversation with Vladimir Putin. Now, everybody likes to complain about Putin to somebody else, but no one ever likes to go to Putin and complain to him. And during this period of time, um, it was particularly the case because natural gas was out of the roof, the price of oil was out of the roof, and he was leveraging that economic leverage he had, in the, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, literally having European countries bent over the barrel. Um, they're in a precarious situation, so everybody is rushing. As soon as the press release went out saying that George W. Bush and Vladimir Putin were going to meet, was going to meet, you know, we, uh, they come rushing and say, will you raise this issue? Will you raise that issue? The church would come to us raising issues. Uh, NGOs, you name it. The li all these people who spend every day criticizing the president are the first ones lining up saying, please carry our, water, carry our mail for us. Please raise this issue. Please say this. Please do that, which is fine. I mean, that is the role. When you are the only major superpower in the world, that is expected to some, to some extent. I will say personally, it's, it was, it's, it's a fascinating relationship, and Russia is one in which um, is very much, uh, I, you know, its whole identity is now Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin very much embodies uh, this dynamic that Russia faces, which is they still have all the pride of being a great power, but they're no longer a great power. And it's an interesting dynamic, so they love to go through the process, or they want others to go through the paces of respecting them. And, and Putin, it, it really is old school. He's an old KGB guy, uh, and, you know, he not always is using uh, accurate information, but he views things very much in black and white, and he's going to be the leader of that country, in my estimation, for the next 20 years. So this idea of being debt prime minister and all that is, is window dressing, in my opinion. He is going to be in charge, and, and it's going to be important for this president to get this relationship right. And I know they've talked about resetting. Uh, the table with them and, and communications, but to Putin, things get personal. And I can only say this by, I sat in four or five different bilaterals with them, and it started in the very first one. And this was one of the first issues we actually dealt with uh, with Russia was chickens. The World Trade Organization, was they were trying to get entry into the World Trade Organization. There was a whole issue and dispute around chickens, particularly American chickens being exported to Russia. The Russians were convinced that they were getting bad poultry. And to the effect, so we're trying to, we're in our first little pre-brief before the, it was going to come in the day before. So the president's thinking, you know, we're going to have a big conversation about proliferation about this and, you know, all the advisors of Russia says, we've got to talk to you about the chickens, sir. And you can see Bush, you're like, what? Chickens? And he's like, so he's like, yeah, you know, there's this whole issue. So Putin comes blowing into the Oval Office. We sit down and and he's, um, George, I know what the problem is. All right, we can fix this. He says, our intelligence shows us that there are good chicken plants in America and there are bad chicken plants in America. And we're only getting the chickens from the bad chicken plants in America. So you can only imagine Bush. So he looks down the aisle like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> he's, he's like, is that true? That, what? And so Putin's like, 
standing there kind of like, yeah, you know, I got any documents in his hand, which we're saying nothing. None of this had ever come up. You know, presidents don't meet until there's countless meetings beforehand. None, none, this was never raised beforehand. This was last-minute intelligence he had. So, of course, Bush, as only he could do, turned the tables on me and says, all right, Vladimir, let's go fire up Air Force One. I'll go to any chicken plant in America. You eat the chicken, I'll eat the chicken, we'll all eat chicken. He was like, couldn't believe it. And he's just like, uh, well, uh, we'll let our people all of a sudden the delegations we're going to take this issue over now. And he was, he was, uh, and so this thing played out. And, it, and like I said, everything is personal and everything, he takes everything personally and then makes it part of, of policy. And so the president knew that this was kind of a rough start on this, so he invited and says, I want you to come to Camp David for um, the next time you're in town. Vladimir's like, that's great. So invite him to Camp David the next year. So we're waiting there at the tarmac at Camp David. And Camp David, for, every, for our standards, it's, just, it's beautiful. It is uh, done with humility. It's a, run by the military, but it's in the mountains there north of, in Maryland, north of, of Washington. There's cabins and stuff, but it's very quaint. Um, and we sent Marine One over to Andrews Air Force Base to pick up Putin. He comes, flies, lands. And you can almost see as soon as he got off the plane, he was thoroughly unimpressed with Camp David. He was kind of looking around. He's like, this is it? You know, just, and Bush was like, oh, here we go. You know, <laughs> so he walks up, and he's like, Vladimir, welcome to Camp David. You know, appreciate you being here. And, uh, and he's, uh, he says, and this was an uncomfortable moment, as it is typically with world leaders when the leader of the strongest and most powerful country in the world goes to his dog, Barney, and says, come over here, Barney, and meet Vladimir. <laughs> and if any of you have Scottish Terriers, please forgive me, but these dogs do not listen, and particularly a dog who knows he's the most powerful dog in the year, of the world, he particularly doesn't listen. So we had this spectacle of the President of the United States trying to get Barney to come like 10 feet. Finally, he convinces him to come over. And he's like, you know, and Vladimir goes down to the pub, and he kind of like, I'm just like, and Putin is just going, you got to be kidding me. This is the. <laughs> Anyways, it plays out. Right at the end of the visit, he goes, George, you need to come to my camp, David, next year. I said, well, we'll be up there for, uh, in the spring, and uh, we'd, we'd love to come by. So we go over there, and his uh, dacha is what he calls it. It's about 60 kilometers north of Moscow. Uh, we drive out there to his 600-acre estate with the guest house, I, could, I would bet, is, was bigger than the White House. Uh, the 32-room house, uh, three private lakes, gymnasiums, you name it, they had it. I mean, it was phenomenal. And we pull up, and there's a beaming Vladimir Putin. He's just like, <laughs> and he goes, uh, George, welcome to my Camp David. And it's like, well, appreciate it. Thank you. And he's on oh, hold. Wait. I said, okay. Pulls out a dog whistle, and it's like, and like from a hundred yards this monstrosity of a dog starts just great dane just comes running to I mean the secret service is like about to pull out their guns and he's like the last minute he like blows the whistle he's like when he stops in front of me he's like Mr. President meet Thor he's faster bigger and stronger than Barney it's like he's just slaw they're coming down off him he's just and, you know, I, I, I give that story a little tongue-in-cheek, but there is a, a meaning behind us that they constantly are looking to say, we're bigger, stronger, badder, faster than you are. We're always going to test you. And they will always be the one, whether it's negotiations with Iran, whether it be dealing with North Korea and the five-party talks, they will always be the last to the table because Putin's going to wait to see who's going to respect me most, who's going to let me view, be viewed as the great power again. And 
It's just a, it's, it's a nuisance, and they're kind of a fence-sitter. And I would even argue that uh, China and others are fence-sitters. They're going to see where things lead in the, in the world and where America is on each side of these issues, and they're going to say they're going to start hedging more than usual. So the signals that are being sent to those countries and those leaders like Putin are important, and, and he takes them, I just would say, he takes them uh, very uh, personally as well. So to get back to my point, this backdrop of souring public opinion, this kind of technological revolution, and how it's changing the way we communicate fundamentally, which is changing our politics. It's changing the way we fight and win wars. It's changing the way we do business. And just for a couple fact points, I mean, if Facebook were a nation, it would be the fifth largest in the world. The fastest growing cohort are women the age 31 to 49. There's this myth that it's all just a bunch of kids on there gossiping. It's not. There's a lot of interactions and discussions and, and important discussions in people's eyes taking place on Facebook. Just when it became comfortable to use email, email has now been surpassed by social media websites as the number one place to communicate online. Uh, it has eclipsed email now that through Facebook and other types of social networking sites, more people globally are communicating through that than they are even. Email now is, will continue to be obsolete in the coming years. And you take that with now Twitter being a household name and the role that Twitter is playing in foreign policy, how it helped organize demonstrations in Iran and Georgia, in Venezuela. Uh, and then you have politically the 08 campaign and President Barack Obama showed masterfully how you can use this new technology to generate and mobilize votes. And, and he also saw the flip side, and something to get into is that there's no longer siloed communications uh, in which we used to always do in political campaigns is that, well, if you had social conservatives, you give them this message. If you have fiscal conservatives, you give them this message. If you have farmers, you give them this message. You have these discrete channels of communication with each of these constituencies. The problem now is everybody hears everything, and everything has to be uh, sensitized or at least understood by all audiences because all audiences are reading everything these days because of technology. And probably the one place where Barack Obama tripped up is when he was in the fundraiser in, South, uh, in San Francisco talking about people in Pennsylvania, and somebody YouTubed it or put it, a blogger in there and put it up, and they had themselves a three- or four-, five-day crisis and probably made that state closer than it should have been. So he even felt... While he maximized it and, and used it to his benefit, he even saw the other side of it in which if you don't do it smartly. So the question really is, how do you navigate this world uh, of unprecedented access to information? And what is the impact it's going to have on policymakers and particularly business leaders? And I would say from a policy standpoint, one of the big issues I dealt with on early in the White House in which were the realities was during that first military campaign in Iraq, uh, dealing with the issue of how the press was going to cover it. But if you recall back in 1991 in the Gulf War, we all remember it was a video game being shown by Schwarzenegger, uh, Schwarzenegger, Schwarzkopf, General Schwarzkopf, uh, same, cut from the same cloth, uh, in Kuwait, not even in country. Each day you had to wait to tune in. They would tell you what happened. It was, uh, reporters were banned from going in country. It was a very controlled message in which they could decide who was going to uh, dictate it. The challenge we had, obviously with the news cycle, but particularly satellite television, is that we knew that Arab TV, there was four Arab television stations in Baghdad that were going to cover it from a perspective we knew we weren't going to like. Um, even the more responsible ones would have been um, worse than anything I can see on a MSNBC any night. Um, and so we had this reality, and the discussion we had is whether we were going to allow our soldiers to be embedded with our troops. And you can imagine the trepidation of the military about allowing for something like that. 
And my colleague who worked as Assistant uh, Secretary of Public Affairs, Tori Clark, and I and others worked on coming up with this policy. And the, and the reason, our, our theory was um, that basically we knew fundamentally our soldiers were doing the right thing and they were going to do it better than anybody else in the world and that they had the character uh, in training that we could trust giving that unprecedented access. On top of that, we knew that the distant relationship the public had with the first war also translate in not having as much invested in the war and therefore giving that vivid first-person account on the battlefield. And if people remember David Bloom for the NBC News on, uh, on the morning and he would be racing down uh, with them and, and, showing, and, and showing how these, you know, the sacrifices that were being made and it got the public more emotionally invested in it. I will say it wasn't without consequence, but one of the challenges we faced was that if you tuned in every, tuned into today's show every day to watch David Bloom and decide what was going on in the war, he dictated everything you knew about the war. So for days in which he was barreling down 60 miles per hour down dusty roads and shooting and doing those things, it feels like we're winning. We must be moving. We're moving. We're moving. We're moving. Well, a dust storm hits. He sits for three days. So every time they go to him, he's sitting there, and all of a sudden it feels like the war is bogged down. <laughs> and really the only way I can describe it is it's like watching, viewing a war through a straw. And in the frustration, they, he'd interview the, the corporal and say, I don't know why we're not moving. It must be, something must be wrong. Well, of course, there are generals who there's, it's a big complex battlefield. There's reasons why you're making advances in one area or stopping and you reload and all those things. But you don't have that perspective when you're just with a platoon. So the challenge for us was, was losing that context that you needed to explain something that is incredibly complex and increasingly, with the fragmentation of media and the way everything is accessible to everybody uh, and having all these constituencies you have to please, that's going to be a bigger challenge. And this is exactly what Barack Obama is going through on Afghanistan, is that he makes an announcement about increasing troop levels. Uh, in that speech, he almost attempts to apologize for having to do it, but then says, we're going to win anyways, and don't worry, they're going to be out in J July of two years from now. Then you had, well, concerns of the military and those things, so Secretary Gates rushes over to Afghanistan and says, no, that's a soft date. That's not exactly what we meant about July being pulled out. We'll have commander deference on the ground. And then I just saw this morning Joe Biden, who's been a critic of this policy that the president adopted, on cable this morning saying, that's a hard date. And everybody's trying to please different, because progressives who they're trying to keep on board for the health care debate are still very mad about the escalation, as they would describe it, in Afghanistan of troops. So he's trying to keep them on the reservation as they try to manage the health care debate. Gates is worried about the military and the enemy and the Afghans and the Taliban and the Pakistanis all trying to judge, is this a real policy or not? you got Putin, you got everybody else looking to try to understand what's going on. And what you're seeing is that you can't have these discrete messages that pulse each of these constituencies. You've got to decide what your policy is going to be, and then robustly defend it. And I think that's one of the challenges. Now, while his numbers increased to a certain extent by eight points on Afghanistan as approval ratings, all that came from Republicans. No Democratic support and very little independent support. It was all Republicans who just read troop increase. He's supporting David Petraeus, who you'll hear from, as well as Stan McChrystal on the ground. Um, so they kind of a rallying effect to, to support the troops. But his challenge has unchanged in the sense that he's got these multiple constituencies um, who have differing objectives, and he's found him. And that's why I think this review took as long as it did, is that he was trying to find, as he typically does, the middle way, 
Or is there a pragmatic center on this? And oftentimes in war, in a military strategy, you just have to decide. And as I tell people, there's no corners in the Oval Office. Uh, they come there, and you've got to make hard decisions. And he's finding that. And I think for policymakers going forward, this is the challenge we face, is that sustaining complex, particularly security-related initiatives or public policy in this world are going to be increasingly difficult to do because trying to manage these coalitions of support, demonstrating what it takes to, uh, to keep their support up is increasingly difficult in this type of new media world where everybody's hearing everything, everybody's making their own analysis. And I would just say that this very same challenge is, is what we're facing with regards to um, and I, I would just say, this is not just a Barack Obama, President Bush found out the hard way on more than one occasion in which he was speaking to one constituency and it, and it bled over into the others in the sense that famously when he said, bring it on. And this was right in the, on the, uh, the eve of the big Iraqi election. The reporter asked him and said, well, the enemy says they're going to strike out a uh, coalition of Iraqi security forces and they're going to decimate it and they're going to ruin the election. And he said, I, you know, I'll put my, our coalition troops up against anybody, bring it on. And his message was, I've got faith in the military. And it was interesting, the military feedback we got after he said that was huge. They are all like, right on, Commander-in-Chief, we got, you got our back, we got your back. But everybody else interpreted it in a much different way, particularly the international community and others, saying this bluster and stuff is how we got ourselves into this mess in the first place. And he learned that lesson and was can and reflecting on it, he would tell you that, that you always have to be conscious of these multiple audience effects. You can't have siloed communications in which one is uh, compartmentalized from the other. This is uh, not a unique situation for government. As I said, that you have the situation where business leaders are now being affected in the very same way. And I'm going to call this, because I don't have a better word for it, but this is the growing divide. And we've seen this way, it's where you have multinational companies that are domiciled in the United States whose economic prosperity or sustained uh, growth and profits and vitality, therefore job creation, is all going to emanate overseas in developing markets, whether it be China, India, you name it. They understand if they're going to survive in a global world, they've got to play and, and be uh, dominant on the global stage. So increasingly we find them, ironically, uh, interested in arcane sections of the tax code about repatriation or things that are um, technical matter on some, in some cases that have huge ramifications for these companies Yet, as Tom Friedman noted recently in an interview with Charlie Rose, he said, this leaves these big multinational companies in some regards hovering over debates going on here in the United States because it's not, in all circumstances, core to what they're trying to achieve. The problem is, is that there's this growing gap in shared priorities because the public is not on the same page as these multinational companies who are trying to pursue business overseas. They want their attention to be here at home. And you have this dilemma is that the more successful these companies are, the more reputational risk they're bringing to themselves here at home. I talked about the isolationist and protectionist tendencies and those things. You're going to find that this, this divide, this gulf, is only going to get bigger. And, and I almost would call it it's the equivalent of what we're seeing here at home, the, the Goldman Sachs effect. The better Goldman Sachs does pursuing its business model, the more reputational risk they get, the more profitable they are, the more challenges that, that are posed to them. And you see these bonuses. And this, and so that's a dilemma that in which I think multinational companies are going to be facing in a similar case because as they pursue more business in China and issues like human rights or things come up or stuff that constituents, local constituencies back home, maybe not just your employees but others, 
are going to raise their voice. And if, public, if the public is moving one way, we can fully expect the politicians to chase it. So that means regulations, laws, and those things. So it's a dilemma in which and those, those companies that understand this dynamic and aggressively plan uh, to uh, ameliorate it are going to be better positioned. They're not going to uh, and give themselves competitive advantage in the marketplace because I see that problem only getting worse. Now, as the economic recovery takes root, maybe some of those isolationist tendencies recede a bit and we won't see as much uh, heated um, uh, opposition to some of these endeavors that are taking place across the global market. But I would say right now the challenge is, is that we need these companies to do well overseas. It is, but the linkage back to our own economic security is a very difficult one to make in this environment. Um, that's why the, the, this administration right now, many economists will say, why aren't you cutting trade deals? Why aren't you cutting trade deals? This is a, a freeway. Uh, it doesn't cost money to stimulate economic activity at home. Problem is, is labor. And nobody wants them cutting deals overseas. They want them to try to be cutting deals and spending money here at home. And I think you're going to find that during this period, this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and, and that really comes to the core of how a company has to think about these things. Um, and I, more and more companies are understanding this. And that is, a company owns its brand. Because typically, your definition of your brand is your relationship with the customer. But the public owns your reputation. And the public is far more than just your customer base. And I think more and more companies are understanding that others have control over their reputation, which then can have an effect on your brand. And understanding those constituencies, understanding those realities is something that I think more and more companies are realizing. I think the challenge for them, as I will say in my closing remarks, and I would love to open up questions. I have left off Texas politics since this is the World Affairs Council. But I'll be happy in the Q&A if anybody wants to talk Texas politics. But I would just say that what I've been most struck by as leaving the White House and now dealing a lot in corporate America is I thought government was bureaucratic. <laughs> I thought government was risk averse. I thought government was siloed. I, it, uh, corporate America is far more risk averse, far more bureaucratic. And that's a real challenge because I think in this nimble world where reputation uh, is as fragile as it is, just ask uh, Tiger Inc. Um, you, you have to be nimble. You have to have strategies in place. You have to be proactive. You have to be constantly building, building that goodwill because you can't build that goodwill during a crisis. And I think more and more companies are understanding it, and I think those who do it best will not only avoid crises, but they will gain a competitive advantage. So with that, I appreciate you hearing me out, and I'd be glad to answer any questions. Dan, this may be the World Affairs Council, but we're interested in all politics. <laughs> Texas politics, take it away. No, uh, well, I'm uh, desperately trying to remain Switzerland in this uh, Republican primary because of my company and things. I just, I've kind of put my political out aside. I would say, though, that um, I'll make a point about the Republican primary process, and I'll make a broader point. Um, it is, I, I find it very, very difficult. I see a very, very difficult path for Senator Hutchison to win this primary. I think that um, there are, um, it can be done, and I've seen it in politics. Uh, things move quickly and can move quickly. Um, I think that whether it was a, a sense of the kind of the not making a decision on whether she was going to stay in office or not, those things um, hurt. 
Governor Perry has a very specific strategy, and he's executing it. Um, I'll be frank, I don't necessarily agree with all aspects of his strategy, but it's going to be successful. And, and I think that whether she's able to articulate, I think one thing that her team made a judgment that I think was only half of the coin was people were tired of Rick Perry, that he had served too long, and it's time to have change. And in politics, that's only half of the equation. A candidate always has to give a compelling reason why they want to be to lead them. And this is something that I think where they have failed to articulate from the very outset. Why should I be governor? What am I going to do? Impound that home. People can make their own judgments about whether Rick Perry's been there long enough. But I think where they missed the opportunity, and I said there's still time, but I think where they missed the opportunity is really articulating why she wants to be governor and what she's going to do differently and why that's important to the state. And so I would say right now, it, it's, I'm not saying anything that's rocket science, it's Rick Perry's to lose, and um, he at times has <laughs> shown, a will, shown an ability to make races closer than they should be based on the fact that, you know, when you get confident, you end up saying stuff that you later regret. I, I had a boss like that. Um, <laughs> and, and so you never know. You never know. And, uh, but I will say, generally, if you look at what's happening in the state of Texas, um, demographically. Sometime between 2025 and 2030, Hispanics are going to be the majority population in Texas. And the Republican Party is blowing an enormous opportunity, in my opinion. I think that they have, uh, either through, whether it be in the articulation of the message, where they're putting their focus, as well as candidate recruitment, all those things, I don't see the type of effort that should be underway to have an authentic relationship with Hispanic for with a community that is going to be the dominant political force in Texas for the next hundred years. I mean, it's 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 demographically undeniable, and my worry is, and and what the frustration is, is that Hispanics in general, um, there's a lot of issues in which there's common ground with Republicans, and I don't see them finding ways to bring those together on whether it be strong national defense, on entrepreneurism, on family. There's just a lot of areas where I think the Republican Party could be doing more. And, you know, in this demographic change is the, Dem- the Democrats here in the state, they're, they came one shy in the House of Representatives. They're, they're on the march. I don't think they make the type of gains this time around. I think Bill White probably comes up just short just because Democrats haven't made that shift just yet. Uh, Barack Obama's approval rating in the state of Texas. Uh, I know in one Democratic congressman's district is at 38 um, percent. So if those things continue and, and trend that way and Texas continues relative to the national economy, have a better economy, um, I think Republicans win this time around, but I think the days could be numbered if they don't get their act together. Other questions? I'm sure you remember when you were much younger and President Reagan nominated Senator Dale O'Connor to be on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I know that you were one of President Bush's advisors in choosing a replacement. Did you ever imagine when you were growing up that you'd get to someday advise the President on replacing Senator Dale O'Connor? What was it like making that um, historic, getting to advise the President making that historic choice to... Yeah, no, I mean, it... Um and I got a lot of friends in this room, and they're like gasping to think that I actually had any say on a Supreme Court nominee <laughs> or a Federal Reserve no, uh, chairman or a Secretary of Defense or all those. But I, it, is, it is humbling, to say the least, and it's also depressing 
because the process in which we put fine candidates through to become a, uh, a member of the Supreme Court is ridiculous. And I could I only I wish I could go through all the candidates we had to unfortunately withdraw from consideration over irrelevant stuff, in my opinion. Um, I will say, though, that I have never met a smarter, more gifted person than John Roberts. I mean, I'll never forget our first, uh, uh, we have, you know, you can imagine the, ma the amount of training uh, or sessions we have to get them ready for a confirmation battle. We were 20 minutes into the first one, and I canceled it. I said, this is not fair. It's not fair to our people. I said, this guy doesn't need any prep. And, and it was like bringing a gun to a knife fight. I mean, those senators didn't have a chance. I mean, encyclopedic memory, uh, obviously incredibly articulate, looks like middle of America. I mean, this was out of central casting. And he, um, although I almost lost my job on the night that he actually was nominated because we announced him, I think we were in the residence. It was a speech to the nation. He had his family there, including they have two young, beautiful kids. And I was, uh, I thought, this is you know, I'm the message guy. I was like, you know, I got to get the picture, get the whole kid, Americana, the whole thing. So we, this little five-year-old boy and his sister was there. And about halfway through the, the, um, the speech, the uh, little boy got very interested in the lights. He started dancing around like this in front of the lights and going, and it's like, oh, no. And, like, I could see the president kind of looking. Oh, it's like, I'll do something. And, uh, and we, there was a little seating area about, 15 feet away, Mrs. Bush is there. Mrs. Bush and her nice little smile at the little kid said, come here. And he went. <laughs> and I just felt my heart sing. I was like, oh, gosh. So he would, like, get dangerous. And what we, he told us afterwards, he was being Spider-Man. So he thought the lights were there. So he was acting like we couldn't tell what he was doing. And it, we, he got, like, within inches of getting in the camera shot. Never The story came out afterwards. We never get it. But, right, I mean, literally they said, dark. And I hear, Bartlett, get out of here. Whose brilliant idea was it? It was like, but uh, it was a it was a real honor, to say the least. Other questions? Right. Oh. Uh, my question is about uh, our current Vice President Joe Biden's uh, uh, tendency to sometimes speak before he thinks and comment that he made about Russia. And I've always wondered whether that was actually a plan at the request of the president uh, to let him be the one that slides that kind of a comment out. Uh, you know, given given their posture. And if only they were that good. Uh, <laughs> Joe Biden's been doing this for 36 years. There's a reason why he's not president, and he is vice president. Uh, he just, it's in his DNA. He can't help himself. I mean, he really can't. And he just, I think, really likes to hear himself talk, and he just can't stop. I mean, it's amazing. And he's a, he's a I've met him several times. He's a, he's a nice, entertaining guy, and it's just, and you would think somebody's been around that long that you would be able to, and they've done a pretty good job, and his communications director is a friend of mine, um, where they've kind of tried to keep them buttoned up in there, and I'm, you know, but it's like, I mean, it's always like on ice skates out there for him, and they just really don't know what he's going to say. <laughs> yes, sir. I know you and your firm provides crisis management uh, <laughs> services and uh, addresses brand issues. I think I know where this is going. <laughs> How would you uh, advise a Republican Party? Oh, you're going to say Tiger? <laughs> oh no. Um, the Republican Party, look, one thing I think is hard to counsel people right now is patience, that we don't have to, you know, there's like, oh, he's, he's, you know, his numbers are down. We've got to get out there. We won these midterm, you know, the off-year elections in Virginia. Let's rush out there, and these candidates, like, I've got to be on the stage. And, and to me, it's too early. And my sense is that the first two years of a presidency is always a referendum. And whether we gain 20 seats or 50 seats, 
in midterms is going to be a product of what Barack Obama does, not what we do. Uh, needless to say, we don't really have a bench either to, to draw upon. My sense is if I were – one of my biggest concerns was that after getting our clocks cleaned uh, in 06, getting our clocks cleaned in 08, um, I personal friends with both Mitch McConnell and John Boehner, but our answer to this is keeping the same leadership in Congress. Say, so we'll just keep with our same guys. And I just think that was a mistake. I think that we got to at least demonstrate, hey, we get it. We'll put new people in. We'll give a new shot to, to folks from a congressional perspective. And then from, you know, out there uh, candidates, I would just think if there would be patience and let, let, let things kind of move quickly. That was, that's why I was disappointed when Bobby Jindal rushed out to do the rebuttal to the State of the Union. I mean, I, I know Bobby's a great guy, and he's smart. He needs time. He needs time. Let these things play out. People don't want to see this opportunistic partisan kind of, oh, we're going to seize the moment and all this. And so that's my first counsel. It's like be patient and be issue-focused. And whether there are issues in which the Republicans have to put, put people who are credible in that space on that issue out to be your spokespeople, but don't think you have to anoint one person right now because it won't work. Um, well, I uh, throw away the, the texter, you know, the, the Blackberry, um, as we write story. No, I mean... Sorry about that, Holly. So, uh, what am I doing? ATT is a client. I can't say that. Uh, be more responsible with it. Um, I would say, look, the biggest mistake they made was that initial statement he put out. Um, you know, obviously he needed to say something the first 24 hours. I think the first 24 hours he was kind of like trying to make sure he didn't get killed by his wife or something to that effect. So he was trying to do internal damage control if we could do external damage control. But when they put that statement out, and I th it was parsed, they said it was basically all these notions that she hit me with a club and all this was wrong. But the way it was worded, it left the impression that all the allegations across the board were wrong. So it left this one impression that everything you were going to hear is all fooey. And then he had to backtrack that over the weekend. And that's where, you know, credibility goes out the window. Um, needless to say, he didn't have much to stand on at the time. Why he hasn't chosen to go out and take all coming, I, again, I think it is one of these things where he has to focus on the family before we can focus on the brand. Um, I think there's probably also scarring to heal, to be honest. I think he probably does have some things that he doesn't want to increase speculation about what he looks like and those things. So I imagine there's some some actual injuries. I don't know what from. There's plenty of speculation out there. But the biggest mistake they made is that if they would have wait, put out the statement they did the second time, the first time, they would be in a, he'd be in a much better position than he's in today. He'd still be in a world of hurt uh, in more ways than one. But he would at that point. And then, you know, obviously uh, the sponsors are making decisions uh, as we speak with regards to their relationship with him. May I have a question back to yeah. How would you uh, then compare the fairness of media coverage uh, the Bush uh, years to the current uh, Obama administration? It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's like how much people are complaining about Fox News. I'm like, that's all we got. We have one channel. You got everything else. You got networks. You've got New York Times. You got... And I'm like, please. Uh, look, it, the funny thing about it is that it doesn't matter, Republican or Democrat, anybody who's in the White House is mad about the press coverage they're getting. It goes all the way back to the first, pre you know, the first president. So, um, you, know, the you know, the dynamics going on right now is that on top of media coverage and those things, you, they're sitting on top of a business model that's crumbling. So you got all these reporters who don't know they're going to have a job the next week, so they, that's kind of in incenting them to be more provocative than they probably have to be. The budgets that are being cut are requiring reporters to cover issues they have no depth or experience or knowledge of. 
it's a really bad situation. So the easy thing then to cover is process, you know, who's up, who's down. You know, the partisan political part, because everybody can be a political analyst, um, but who can really get into uh, understanding telecommunications policy or understanding healthcare policy or understanding energy or Afghanistan. Fewer and for, fewer reporters have the real credibility to cover those stories legitimately. Uh, so it's a real challenge, and, I, and they're, equal, they're opportunistic. Now, no doubt 90% of those in the journalism business are on left to center. I always said, you know, Democrats on issues start first and 10. We always started first and 15. Um, and, you know, I had to kind of dig out of the hole on issues, particularly on social issues. Um, but at the end of the day, they're very poll-driven. Uh, they'll turn on this guy just like they turned on us. It's just a matter of time because it's all commercial to them. Whoever can be the smartest one to call the turn first or who can be more provocative, getting them on the evening news, being the first bite or being on the front page, drives them, or being the first blog out now, um, drives and motivates them just as much as... Now, some have made business decisions. Like I said, MSNBC has made a business decision that there's a certain market they're going to go after, and they're, they're doing a pretty good job at that. CNN's kind of caught in the middle where they're trying to say that they're, they're kind of the, 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 the umpire. Uh, I think time will tell whether that will work or not. They've got a handful of people who have credibility. I think the other ones there don't. But... Uh, um, it's a challenge, and I think that – and then the question is, what is a journalist? What is, you know, the de- very definition itself? And we grappled with this because in the Washington, you only had a certain amount of badges of people who could be in the White, in the White House press corps for the press briefings. And then the Washington Post said, well, we've got a blogger we want in. We said, well, it's a blogger, reporter, these things. And uh, the very definition is radically changed in and of itself. So, uh, you know, but I would – I could nitpick, but – like I said, I think it's equal opportunity. Whoever's in, the other ones, they're going to be mad, regardless of affiliation. Dan, President Obama seems to be on television every day giving a speech. Mm-hmm. When you were there in the White House, what decision process did you go through to make a recommendation to the president about when he should be before the public or give a press conference? You know, uh, I think that, um, look, it's their president's greatest strength, and I can't say that about the one I worked for. And he admit that, too. He, you know. It was not his strongest suit. So we had to pick moments of how we used him. Um, and we had to understand whether they, he had the right credibility on issues. For example, the last big decision I was involved in for left was the surge in Iraq. We understood that the president had lost his credibility with the public on Iraq. We knew as commander-in-chief he had to make the announcement of that. But very shortly after him making that initial announcement, I pulled him down in the face of the surge was General Petraeus up on Capitol Hill, on TV, and all those things. And that was just us understanding who could be more effective at speaking. Right now, as I said, he's got better political standing than anybody else. They're using him my, where I would differ with them is they're using him all over the lot. There's no focus to it. And I think with this fragmented media uh, dynamic we have in which people are being hit with so many messages from so many different ways, the old adage in advertising, you've got to repeat the same thing over and over for people to hear it. I think they're failing that task. And I think every day he's up there, he's talking about something different. And if you're talking about five different things, you're not talking about anything. And I think that's why they lost the narrative on the economy, and I think that's what's driving his numbers down more than anything else, is that the narrative has just has been diffused over all these issues uh, to the point where they can't understand what he's really focused on. And so tactically, him being out there a lot, like I said, the relative strength he has in his political standing, and coupled with his ability to do it, which is phenomenal, you know, I would probably be more aggressive. Like, what I would do differently is I would have it much more focused on specific, discrete messages, particularly the economy and jobs. 
Bruce, you have the last question. Oh, I just wanted to know how you thought they handled the uh, Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, and what would you have advised doing? I would have, I would have told them to FedEx it to me. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know um, look, I mean, because it was not just that, it was Copenhagen as well and the climate change talks. I think both of those things could not have been more ill-timed for what they're trying to do because of the economy and these things, and he's over there getting... Having said that, his actual speech, I thought, was well-crafted and obviously well-delivered. I think they did the best a job as they could with it once given that circumstance. But let me, let me tell you, his honors there, I mean, they did not want this. I mean, the timing of this and the way he got it, the whole thing, um, they would far would have, better, you know, would have preferred that to happen a couple years from now than now. And, uh, you know, it, it was what it was. It was a repudiation of Bush. We all know it was. And it was, I mean, they literally made the vote before even, like, the first week he was in office. So, uh, but, I, you know, as far as how they crafted the speech and those things, he made, you know, he didn't have much of a choice. He had just made a decision to increase troop levels by 30,000 and getting the peace. He had to make the peace through strength essentially the peace through strength argument and I think he did a, a for a Democrat from his with the progress the issues he has with his base um, he did a pretty good job ladies and gentlemen let's give a big hand thank you very much for more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org